I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hey everyone, we're so glad you could join us again for our podcast. Today's guest is a mom, wife, author, Bible study teacher, and holds many other ministry responsibilities. And I know you're going to enjoy meeting her on today's episode of Chasing What Matters. I'm your co-host, Jacob Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Glenn Robinson. Our guest today is Kat Armstrong. Kat is a powerful voice in our generation as a sought-after Bible teacher, preacher, coach, and innovative ministry leader. She holds a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary and is the author of No More Holding Back, The In-Between Place, and a six-book series called Storyline Bible Studies. She has her own podcast, The Polished Podcast. Kat is the Director of Leadership Processes for Integrous Leadership. She's pursuing a Doctorate of Ministry in New Testament Context at Northern Seminary and serves as a board member of Pillar Seminary. She and her husband, Aaron, have been married for 20 years, live in Dallas, Texas with their son, Caleb, and they attend Dallas Bible Church, where Aaron serves as the lead pastor. Kat, welcome to Chasing What Matters. Glenn and Jacob, I've been looking forward to this all day. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, we are super excited to have you here. Uh, we've been looking forward to this uh, as well. So let's get started. All Let's take it all the way back to the beginning. Tell us where you're from and what growing up was like. Sure. I'm from H-Town. And for anyone who doesn't know, that is from Houston, Houston proper, born and raised. Um, so I had a when I have one biological brother and great mom and dad. We lived in Cyprus and we would go into school at Houston Christian High School. And um, yeah, so I lived in Houston the whole time. Well, Kat, when it came time for college, what were you thinking? Well, A&M was only 45 minutes away from Cyprus. <laughs> and I, I, they still let the top 10 in. You know, back in the day, they just Way let anybody in. Yeah, that's right. So uh, um, it was an easy choice because it was close to home. I had no idea Aggies are so crazy um, and so excited about their sports. And I'm definitely a two percenter. So I'm sorry to disappoint anyone listening. Um, but A&M was where I really grew my faith and I met my husband. So I love Aggie land. Yeah, you know, we were talking with uh, some neighbors <clears throat> last night, actually, uh, about how back in the good old days, it was the top 10%. Uh, and I think now they've definitely dwindled down to top seven, they may have even gone further. Now, Disclaimer, uh, I was never going to fall in that category. We're referring to my wife. Uh, but I was talking about how it was uh, a, a great um, advantage of mine that we were living out of state at the time. So I got to slip in under the radar of an out of state kid. Uh, <laughs> and thank goodness for it, uh, because I would 
have gone somewhere else to school. But A and M is a is a great place. And as like I was telling somebody the other day that was from out of state, please don't try to make me explain it to you. Um, just because yeah. it's only going to get weirder and weirder by the minute. You got to so, visit. You kind of got to see it for it. yourself to understand. That's it. That's it. So, well, you mentioned uh, you know your time at A and M is where your your faith really started to grow and develop. Uh, were you thinking about a career in ministry at that point, or, or when did you start thinking about a career in ministry? <laughs> Yeah, I really started to think about it my sophomore year of college at AM. I was in Phylam or Sigma Phi Lambda, a non panhellenic sorority, Christian sorority, and there were about 400 women the year that I joined in, um, in that class. And the girl who discipled me, Carrie, she had invested in my life years. I mean, she really taught me how to read the Bible, how to pray, everything she was learning at church. I think she just brought her sermon notes to me, you know, to coffee every week and trained me in the faith. And by the time she was graduated from A&M, she had been the chaplain of our sorority. And she said, you know, it would be a gift to me is that if you would use all the things that I've been building into you and you would run for officer and you would be chaplain. And at the time we were booking outside speakers and sometimes leading Bible studies. And she said, you need to run. And if you get the position, I want you on the first time to teach the Bible lesson. Uh, you, any other time you can book an outside speaker, but just do it once. And I just want to see if you like it. Cause I have a hunch that you have a gift of teaching and I did it, you guys. And after that first lesson in Ephesians, thank goodness it was not audio recorded. I'm I'm very concerned about the heresy that I may have taught. <laughs> now I know a little bit better. But I taught through the book of Ephesians that year, 400 women every Monday night, phylum, you know, chapter meeting. And after that first time, I thought, I want to do this forever. I don't need to get paid to do it. It doesn't have to be my full-time job. But I know that I want to study the Bible the way I have to prepare for this lesson. So that's the best part of teaching. There's so much you don't get to, to share with people that the Spirit has done in your life as you prepare. And, you know, I wouldn't have even considered the sorority or, or anything related to ministry if my cheerleading coach and my choir teacher hadn't shared the gospel with me when I was 16, but both of those working women um, used their influence in my life to pull me aside and to share the gospel with me. And so now, 20 years later, vocational ministry, I work primarily with professional women. And I think it's because the professional women in my life when I was young, they shared the gospel with me. They taught me how to read the scriptures. And right after I came to faith, I was going to Houston's First Baptist Church, and I John Durham was my youth pastor at the time. And I remember going to John and saying, I'm not a youth groupie kind of girl. I'm not a camp girl, and I don't know anything about the Bible. I don't know the difference between Abraham and Moses. So where do I start? And John said, there is a very Southern lady with very Southern hair that teaches the Bible here on Sunday mornings in a Sunday school class, but it's for adults only. And he said, I bet you could sneak in, sneak into that back row and you would go unnoticed. And he said, she teaches line by line. And he was not lying. I mean, John was exactly right. It's what I needed. There were 600 people in that Sunday school class and it happened to be Beth Moore. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know that she had any influence outside of the Sunday school class. I just thought this woman's passion for the word of God is contagious. You know, you just can't be in her orbit without going, what, what 
version is she reading, you know? (laughs) Um, And she would, at the time, it was called Water's Edge Sunday School Class. She would make front and back study notes with fill in the blanks. And then at the bottom, she would put all of her sources cited. And so I started to buy some of these commentaries and theology books, not knowing that they were anything different than trade books. Just while she's reading, I'm going to read them. And your question was how, you know, was I thinking about ministry? Not until a conversation with her. So I met her at at her office because she was my Sunday school teacher, no other reason, and just said, Beth, I'm going to A&M. I'm going to miss your class so much. You know, what do I do? I have this insatiable passion now to study God's word sitting under your teaching. How do I keep learning? And she said, you should go to seminary. And I thought that was a place or a, I didn't know what she was talking about. Never heard that word before. And I remember my first question to her was, can girls go to seminary? What? (laughs) Graduate school for the Bible. And that that determined my course in life, truly. And it was just because she was super invested. I'd watched her for years. And so by the time I got into Philam and started teaching the scriptures, I thought, okay, I think I do want to go to seminary. And um, I met my husband soon after, and he wanted to go too. So it was a match made in heaven. Well, for our listeners, I, I know that you think uh, Jacob and Glenn's universe is pretty small. It, it's just funny to me how um, here, I mean, I didn't meet you, Kat, until the past year, but yet uh, back in season two, episode four, uh, we had John Durham on Chasing What Matters, and so Kat's referenced that. And then, uh, of course, John has uh, also served as a pastor here in Waco for a number of years. Well, you mentioned Aaron, and uh, tell us more about how you exactly uh, met each other, and then uh, tell us about uh, that journey to seminary land. Sure. Well, we just celebrated our 20-year anniversary last week. And Aaron really is the love of my life. That guy is the real deal. Um, he's the same at home as he is behind the pulpit. Um, and we met kind of as a fluke. His roommate liked my best friend, and I had helped coordinate um, his best friend asking my girlfriend out <laughs> on a date for a date party. Sounds like most good uh, college love stories, right? There. <laughs> exactly. Started with a date party and they came to me with a favor and said, could you help us? And I said, I will, but I want also something in return. I also know you have a roommate. It wasn't Aaron, another roommate who's a computer genius. My computer has crashed. I will help you, um, get this date. If you will help fix my computer. And Aaron just was along for the ride, had nothing else better to do, joined his buddies to come over to this random girl's dorm and help fix the computer. And as soon as he walked in, y'all are going to, this is the nerdiest thing. I can't believe I'm sharing this. He walked into my dorm room and saw my Strong's Concordance, which is a Greek concordance. And he was like, I love this book. And I was like, do you want to get married right now? So I was a freshman. He was a junior. He would take a victory lap. And we we dated soon after that. I mean, it's kind of a funny story. It took me a while to get his attention, but I was very intent. And um, I negotiated with my sorority sister to get his work schedule. I mean, it's very stalkerish, but it paid off, you guys, and I feel but very it, proud. Listen, listen, stalkerism 
whatever that we want to call the word uh <laughs> social media this day this day and age it, it was just you were just doing it pre-social media thank uh, you jacob listen we would do the exact same thing on instagram or facebook and we all just need to admit that we do it uh <laughs> and the world will be a better place thank uh, you jacob so, yes i like props, how you reframe that. that i yes. like now, that listen, a that, lot. that may that may be coming from somebody who facebook stalked their wife over christmas yep. break <laughs> yep. uh freshman year of college <laughs> but I still believe uh, in what I said. So uh, I also would love to know how many marriages have been uh, uh, ignited because of that book um, and how many people have uh, a common love uh, for all those books that y'all have. So uh, that's also concordance. Probably just one. I was about to say I I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, probably just one. (laughs) But at least they have one, you know, there was one. one. God knew. That's it. Uh, That's fantastic. Well, Tell us about, uh, you know, there's an age, age gap there a little bit. I mean, say he did a victory lap, uh, and then y'all both went to seminary together, I, I presume. And so tell us, tell us about that. Tell us about those early years of marriage and ministry. When did y'all get married? Kind of walk us through those first few years. Sure. Well, we were married. I was a junior at A&M, and he had just graduated. So I remember going back to business classes at the business school and people asking me if I had, you know, gotten pregnant on accident because they couldn't believe why I would be a junior and be married. Uh, So we were, you know, cars without air conditioning and in a tiny little apartment and we were just poor as could be and happy too. And we moved to Dallas to go to Dallas Seminary where Aaron started selling cars at Sewell GMC. And um, we joked at the time that we would do anything for money, even sell cars. And then (laughs) I got into network marketing and was very successful selling skincare. And that put us through seminary. And I loved, I loved it. Um, But yeah, the early years of ministry, we focused in on a ministry called Apartment Life, where you become the chaplains of an apartment community. And we loved that ministry. It, you, when you combine his his passion for sales and preaching the word of God, and my passion for discipleship and teaching, it was a great use of our you know time before kids. And we were married for ten years before we had Caleb intentionally, so we could finish school. But you guys, we've had so many different jobs. Aaron has had more clarity on his calling and how he would get there. He knew he always wanted to be a lead pastor, and so. This is his, I think, 18th year in vocational church staff leadership. And, um, you know, I will just say that as a pastor's wife, my journey's been really interesting. I mean, there are some days I wake up, Jacob and Glenn, and think, how am I a pastor's wife? This is, I don't think I'm the right candidate for this position. Um, and then there are other days I think there are so many different kinds of pastor's wives that Um, It's okay for me to feel a little bit um, out of the box sometimes, but I'll just say for our ministry, what you guys need to know, and I think your listeners would enjoy hearing, is that Aaron's the kind of man that says this phrase to me all the time when I come to him with crazy ideas or I want, I started a company, I started a nonprofit, you know, I start writing books. He says this phrase, go for it, go for it. And I know I have his full support. He is such an advocate um, and always has been. And I jokingly say, it's like, you know, you're going to be in the boxing ring and I've got someone in my corner who's got this huge sign that says, go for it. And everything good in my life has been Aaron 
affirming my calling and saying, I want to support you. What do you need from me to be able to do that? And he just did that today. We went to lunch today on a day date. And I said, I need you to help with Caleb's homework this weekend so I can get some writing done. So that's That's a little bit about us. I love it. I love it. Well, as somebody who uh, bought a car yesterday, we need some more seminary students in the car buying (laughs) process. Uh, I can can say that much. Uh, So that's Fantastic. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I love that. Right. I mean, I, I love uh, y'all's story. I love your journey. Um, and and I, I think it's super encouraging. And I've heard nothing but great things about apartment life. I know individuals that have done it. Uh, I know people that have benefited greatly from it. And so um, um, props to, to serving in that role as well. Well, I can certainly say that uh, both Jacob and I are blessed to be married to two spouses that hold up that go for it sign all the time. And, uh, uh, I don't know where we would be, uh, without that kind of support. So we, we totally get it. And I would say, well done, Aaron. And I bet that uh, you hold up that sign for him as well, Kat. Well, you, you've alluded to it earlier. You have, uh, you're going to spend this coming weekend doing some writing, but you started writing long ago. How did you, uh, fall into writing your first book and, uh, and then tell our listeners a little bit about that as well? You know, I love investing in the next generation of female uh, ministry leaders. So I usually take an intern or have had one where I'm discipling them on a regular basis. And I had an intern who really knew a lot about websites. And she said, you should launch a blog. And we did. And that's really the beginning of my writing career is this amazing intern, Allison Reif, at the age of 17 saying, you should have a blog. And she helped me launch one. It's soon after my father passed very tragically. He had suffered with a lifetime of substance abuse and mental illness, and the combination can be um, detrimental to say the least. And it's taken so many lives of the people that I love. And so his alcoholism and suicidal ideation was kind of a norm for me growing up. But when he passed by death by suicide in 2017, it you guys, it shook me. It still t- still takes my breath away sometimes. And it'll something like that kind of traumatic experience and that kind of loss brings you to pen and paper. What do I want to do with my life? Because life is really short. And now I'm thinking about my days being numbered and I want to make it count. And one of the, you know, bucket list items was I sure would love to write about Jesus. And I would love to write Bible studies that encourage curious Christians to explore Bible stories. And um, so that that's really where it started, you guys. Allison Rife telling me to launch a blog, my father's passing. And then I get asked a lot of times, you know, how did you find an agent? How did you get with HarperCollins? How did all of that work out? Truthfully, I Googled it. I really did. I Googled, what does it take to publish a book? It was maybe a five-step process. And I put a, you know, proposal together and by God's grace was partnered with W Publishing for my first two books, um, No More Holding Back in the In-Between Place. And now my publishing partner is Tyndale and Nav Press. And um, it's just God's grace that I've had amazing ministry partners that want to cultivate content that really changes people's lives. So that's how I got into publishing. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I I love what you said there. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, sit and wonder how you get to your seat, right? Or how uh, this person must have had X, Y, and Z done. And a lot of times it's, hey, I I just Googled it. Or, hey, I just took the first step. Or, hey, I just started asking questions. And, and I think a lot of times fear holds us back. I think Satan works, uh, 
wonderfully in that arena of holding us back. And, and sometimes it's we don't have uh, a spouse that's saying, hey, go for it. But whatever it is, uh, I love to hear stories of people that are just saying, hey, I just just started walking. And, and then yeah. I yeah. I'm with you on that, Jacob. I mean, I made it sound simple. It wasn't easy. And I was rejected multiple times, right? I was rejected by potential agents who told me it'd never work out. I had, you know, houses who told me the project was silly. No one would ever read it. I have emails filed away that said you're a disappointment. You know, your writing skills are below average. I have all of those. I printed them out. I save them because those failures and hardship in the industry They've really made me stronger and it's helped me figure out who I want to be as a writer, what kind of products I want to contribute my efforts to. And there's a lot of change that happens in that industry. You kind of got to be really flexible. So just encourage listeners, if they're thinking about publishing, to really hone their skills, serving in a church, cut your teeth there, write some Bible studies for your local church. Um, but you're right. It you got to make that first step, and you just yeah. the failure part's inevitable. Yeah, and making failure your friend, right? And and, and being comfortable with that. I, I <clears throat> forget the the lady's name. Um, forgive me. It's the lady that uh, founded and started Spanx. Um, oh yeah. Oh, um, my heavens, uh, Blake. Um, um, I'm going to yes, think of it. Uh, yes. Uh, and if you're listening to it, uh, founder of Spanx, I apologize uh, that I forgot <laughs> your name here. And also email us. We'd love to have you on the show. But um, <laughs> part of her story is uh, she grew up and, and uh, I still think this is a good, I'm still wrestling through the, the uh, parental guidance of what I'm about to say. But she grew up every night that her dad around the dinner table would make everybody go around and answer what they failed at that day. Mm-hmm. And and because he wanted to normalize failure. Hey, listen, we all fail. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's what we're going to do with that failure. It's how we're going to push through that failure. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, it's going to make us stronger by doing so. And so I love that idea of like, hey, I don't want to hear about the good things today. Tell me, tell me about the bad things. Let's let's get better from it. And so, um, yes, make failure your friend uh, because it's inevitable, uh, just like you said. So, um, uh, Sarah Blakely. Yes, uh, I apologize. I forgot your name, Sarah Blakely, because uh, I'm sure you're listening. Um, <laughs> you know, Kat, I, I know one of the books you've written is The In-Between Place, and we've referenced that already, but it's in, uh, I hear it involves some interesting research. So tell us more mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, The In-Between Place, I spend, you know, 50,000 words talking about the woman at the well. <laughs> Sure. At first, my publisher was like, please don't, please, you know, expand it. Let's just not. John 4 is really too narrow. But you know how the Holy Spirit will bring you to a text and you just keep going back and you keep going back and you have new illumination. That's how I felt journeying with her. I went on this uh, life changing trip to the Holy Land and I remember being in Israel. And we were visiting modern day Samaria. We get off this armored bus while bombs are going off, uh, you know, a couple miles away in Gaza on Independence Day. And we get off this bus and we're overlooking what would have been Samaria. And our Bible teacher of the day and our tour guide start sharing with us what would have happened in this geographical area. And one of them said, you know, obviously this is where the conversation with Jesus and the woman, a nameless woman at the well, the Samaritan woman would have happened. And then very casually they said, and also this is where Dinah, Dinah from Genesis chapter 34, um, her story would have taken place here too. 
And I remember getting on the tour bus and opening up my Bible and then my Bible app concordance and going, this is so interesting. I want to look up every time Samaria is in the scriptures. And then I want to chart like geographically what happened here, because you know that when I say H town, I grew up in Houston and if you're from Houston or you visited there, or you work there for a time, you know what I'm saying when I say around the loop or at the Galleria, or you can picture in your mind um, certain things in that city. And for, you may have distinct memories associated with that place. You may be, you know, Houston's where I was born. It's where I came to faith in Jesus. It's where I met my Sunday school teacher, Beth Moore. We put there, you know, geography isn't a mistake. God intercepts us where we are and he intentionally goes places in the scriptures. So that's really what the in-between place is about. And I'll give you a quick overview. If you want to nerd out with me for a bit, this is probably real intense for your listeners because Dinah in Genesis chapter four, it's a, it's a 34. It's a tragic story. You know, she is named Dinah. This is Jacob's daughter and she's royalty, right? And she goes out very casually and she is spotted by a man named Shechem in a place called Shechem. And he um, rapes her. This this horrific story. Remember, the brothers get really mad. It seems like Jacob's kind of silent on the matter. The brothers want vengeance. They they go ahead and marry her off um, to her abuser, and they negotiate that in return, everyone will have to get circumcised. They do that not for religious purposes, but so that they will be weakened by that um, you know surgery. And they go in and they kill everybody as vengeance for the way that Dinah was treated and her abuse. And you end this chapter, you guys, and you're like, this is the most depressing chapter in the Bible. That this first daughter in the Bible who's named and mentioned at birth is raped by Shechem. It's very grievous that Jacob seems pretty silent about this when just chapters later, you know, he's ripping his clothes off for Joseph's potential death. And we never hear Dinah's voice in Genesis chapter 34 ever. She's silent in the text. The chapter ends with mass genocide. I mean, you're like, good gracious, get me out of the book of Genesis. You know, Dinah's story begins with this really ominous and casual interaction with their friends. And, you know, it's got Shechem and his predatory behavior. So you've got all that happening. And I'm on this tour bus looking at modern day Samaria, knowing that's where all of this would have happened. And you guys, women and men would have known. I mean, that's like huge history for this place on a map. Everyone would have known how women were treated there. That is the exact same place where Jesus met the woman at the well. So in the Old Testament, it's called Shechem. In the New Testament, it's called Sychar. By the time you get to John chapter 4, it says Jesus had to go to Samaria. And we know that means that doesn't mean that he didn't have a choice. This is the Savior of the world. He intentionally went to that woman at the well in Samaria. And we've got such a, a contrast. So you got Dinah, you know, royalty. But this woman at the well is nameless in her in her context. But Jesus knows her name, right? You've got Hamar, Shechem's dad, who's like, this is a place known for terror where bad things happen to women. Then you've got Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who with his presence makes her feel safe enough to talk to a stranger, right? You've got Jacob silent about Dinah's rape, probably motivated by power and money and the land that he bought from her rapist dad. Then you've got Jesus initiating a conversation with a woman that already knew her story and wanted to hear it from her perspective, right? You've got Dinah's voice is never heard in Samaria. The woman at the well has the longest recorded conversation in the whole New Testament with Jesus. 
you know, you've got mass genocide in Dinah's story. You've got the end of the woman at the well sharing the gospel with her whole town. And there's revival in that city. You know, it's just, there's, there's so many parallels. And what I point out in the in-between place is that Jesus goes to our do not enter zones. Jesus goes to the hardest places in our life and he meets us there and he changes the history there. He redeems it. And I think by his presence, he was saying, you know, what part of what happened to Dinah and all the history that exists in this place, God can change it. And so that's what the in-between place is about. Thanks for indulging my my nerding out. (laughs) Love that. Love that. Thank you. And to our listeners, uh, we'll mention again later, but we'll have all the links to purchase these books in the show notes below. So make sure you check those out. Um, But I know going from there in 2008, you co-founded the Polish Network and you have your own podcast, uh, which we'll also have links to that in the show notes below. Uh, Tell our listeners about that network and, and the podcast as well. Yeah, the Polish Network uh, girlfriend, Stephanie, and I were both at Dallas Seminary and working full time. And we started to meet on a regular basis just to pray. And we jokingly said, this is going to be cheaper than therapy. Let's just meet for coffee once a week and we'll pray about (laughs) how hard it is to be a young professional woman living in Dallas who loves Jesus, trying to share the gospel with our coworkers. We can vent about how challenging it is to be one of the few women on campus at Dallas Seminary in 2003, four and five and six. And, you know, we, so we met every week and prayed, you guys, and we would come with a list of our coworkers, like, God, give us opportunities to share our faith at work. And finally, one meeting, Stephanie said, we should do something more than just pray. We should, we should create an environment, cultivate a place where working women could come and talk about their faith and their work. So a faith and work movement for women by women. And at first we thought, well, there's got to be one. We'll just join it. And after some research, we thought, you know, we really want to focus on some of the younger women who are resisting church, leaving church. You know, the the stats are plummeting for women's um, religious affiliation, and we were really burdened by that. And so we started the Polish Network out of a personal need. What if we created a place we wanted to go once a month where we could have do a luncheon, personal development, professional networking, but also learn and talk about Jesus? And could it be a safe place to invite people? So it's very invitational and out, outward focused. So that outreach has been around almost 15 years, you guys. I can't believe it. Um, 15 years later, by God's grace, we have chapters all over the U.S. And we have that national podcast and have reached just tens and thousands of women with the gospel. Um, and we call them gospel impressions. We're just trying to share our faith and help professional women and, you know, on the business side, I could go into the 83 cents on a dollar that women make compared to men. And Polish not only helps women in their faith, but we're also helping link arms with each other, right, to really advance ourselves in in business. Um, and you can tell I get really fired up when I talk about it because um, these young professional women are usually working full time, volunteering at church, raising young families and their leaders at the Polish Network, because they want to reach their friends for Jesus. Um, So on the podcast, we invite professional women who already know and love God to share their testimony. And it's super fun. You you end up learning from all sorts of different industries and types of people. I love that. If you have one nugget to give a girl graduating college right now about to go to the workforce, what is it? 
I would say you've got to have at least two or three really solid Christian friends. They don't even have to be in your industry or work for your company where you guys can rally once a week and pray for each other. It might be a text thread, you know, it might be a group me chat. It might be an Instagram message, whatever it is, choose the app, choose the platform, choose the time, make it a weekly regular thing and really devote yourself to pray, to pray, to be a light in such a dark place. And, um, that would be my number one piece of advice. Love that. Yeah, just excellent. Well, in preparing for our podcast, I, I know uh, just talking with you that there is one thing that you are really charged up about and really excited about, and that's your latest Bible study. Uh, it's going to be released this coming January of 2023. Um, anyway, Kat, you could give our listeners just a sneak peek about what this Bible study is all about. Yes, Glenn, this is the first time I've talked about it. You know, I mean, really, just my friends and family for the last year have endured countless prayer requests for a word count. Please pray that tomorrow I can reach 10,000 words, you know, (laughs) over and over and over for 18 months. But it's called the Storyline Series, and it's a six Bible study book um, series of studies. And I'm so excited about it. So during the COVID era, I stopped dreaming. I don't know about you guys. I had to be so flexible and pivot so many times I was dizzy and I just focused on what had to be done and how we could sustain what was already built. And I remember being challenged by a very prophetic voice in my life. Her name's Margaret. And we were in my backyard doing Bible study as a small group. And she said, Kat, I I sense that you have a dream in your heart that you haven't articulated, or maybe you've just stopped dreaming. And I said, I have, I'm just trying to, you know, survive, (laughs) trying to move forward. And she said, do you have a big, hairy, audacious dream? Like, what's your BHAG right now? And I said, honestly, it would be to write a whole series of Bible studies that help people put their faith back together. I think a lot of people have a fragmented faith right now, a deconstructed faith. I think a lot of people are pulling things out of the scriptures, and it's not strung together very cohesively. And I think if you look at the Bible as a literary masterpiece and marvel at God's intention, all those little details, you start to see the big picture and go, there must be a God, there must be someone with the brilliance to put this kind of story together over this many thousands of years and this many authors. Um, And so this series is really about the unity of scriptures. I follow a person, place, or thing. So I'm writing about mountains in the Bible, valleys in the Bible, trees in the Bible, stones in the Bible, types of archetypes of people in the Bible. And it's been a blast, as you can tell. I've really nerded out. Um, but I was in, this all really started in Broken Bow. We were drinking some hot chocolate as a family, and I was reading Jonathan Pennington's um, commentary on Matthew. And he just casually mentioned how many mountains were in Matthew. Jesus is tempted on a mountain. His most famous sermons on a mountain. He's transfigured on a mountain. Great commission happens on a mountain. You guys, I just nerded out. And I was like, I'm going to look up every time mountains in the Bible. And it was such a fruitful endeavor that now we've got some Bible studies to prove that I've spent some time (laughs) studying them. So uh, I hope people check it out and support the series. It'll be long. There'll be some longevity to it. Love that. Love that. Yeah. It's going to be a great series. And I bet if you're talking about mountains, you've got to be talking about valleys. Yes. uh, the places where we really grow. And mm-hmm. uh, so that is going to be good. We're going to look forward to that. And to our listeners, again, that'll be uh, pushed out uh, from Cat's publisher in January of 2023. So be be looking for that. Cat, um, I just want to throw in, you, you alluded to the pandemic. Um, 
I know in so many of the church leaders that I've spoken with just talked about how the pandemic has affected the modern-day church, especially here in America. Uh, would you like to spend just a moment uh, just chatting about uh, how that's impacted your church and what else you've seen uh, because you're connected so well with so many other uh, leading congregations across the country? I think we're in a real tender spot, the church. I think we feel really beat up. I think I think our reputation and institutional trust has eroded really significantly. I think that has to do with the social factors. I think it has to do with church leadership failings. I think that has to do with socioeconomic. I think it has to do with political polarization. I think it has to do with individualization in this modern era. I think there's a lot of contributing factors, but at the end of the day, I just think people are in a real tender spot. I think they need a lot of mercy and a lot of compassion. And I think the future of the church will be making space for people who disagree with one another. And the future has to be some nuance around really hard topics and a willingness to stay in a conversation longer than we're comfortable. That's my personal viewpoint. I think COVID revealed to us that discipleship was primarily viewed as an hour long for someone in the pulpit. And for a great majority of people, they felt lost to pursue Jesus without that time gathered. And as important as it is, and as beautiful as it is, as much as I love airing doing it, and um, I love congregational worship, I think what we found is that we've, we've got to connect with Jesus outside of a Sunday morning church service and we'll always need to do that. And I also think we found, gosh, isn't it good to be together? Isn't it good to be together? Um, and we're better when we're together. Um, we're nicer <laughs> when we see people you know, past a screen and a keyboard and a couple of digits later on a tweet. Um, so I think that I think we're in a tender place and it's going to take some compassionate leaders to guide us through. Yeah, you know, I think. I think you're right. We were uh, had some buddies over last night. We were just talking about how, um, man, in, in tough conversations, in polarizing conversations, uh, whatever it may be, we somehow, and I don't know if it's always been this way. I don't know if I've just started paying attention to it. I don't know if it's a post-COVID thing or, or whatever it may be. I feel like we've lost a lot of grace in 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 our in our conversations, right? Just just believer to believer, believer to non-believer, non-believer, uh, whatever you want the dynamic to be. We've lost grace in that mm-hmm. and, and 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 in loving others and having those conversations we forget to extend grace you know i was listening this past weekend matt chandler it, it might have been his sermon last week it might have been a, a sermon a couple weekends ago and he was telling a story and he prefaces it with he's like i've heard this story about c.s lewis i can't actually find out if it's true he's like but i've heard it passed down he said you know he was walking around oxford and all these theologians were in the library and they had written on the chalkboard all of the religions, known religions in the world. Mm. And they were debating the differences between them all and, and the good and the bad and the ugly. <clears throat> and they, they saw him walking past in the hallway. And they said, hey, what is the difference between all these religions? Or why is Christianity different than all these religions? Religions, And he said, grace. And then he walks out of the room. And, and we forget that. And, and we forget that... Um, Having conversations, tough conversations, uh, especially with non-believers, uh, 
we just we 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 have stepped off into having poor conversations with people, and and you're right, the church is in a, a tender place, uh, and 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 the non-church world is in a tender place, and um and and it's not a pie in the sky. Let's just all love each other, kumbaya kind of deal. We can have tough, hard conversations. We don't need to be afraid of those. We also don't need to dig our heels in and just go to our camp and just talk to our camp about it. You know, uh, I'm running a theme park now, uh, something that I never thought I would say. Uh, uh, you know, you talk earlier about, you know, if some days you wake up and you don't know if you feel qualified to be a pastor's wife and how'd you get here and all this kind of stuff. Melissa and I were joking this past uh, weekend, we were on a road trip and I said, hey, we closed out the first summer owning a theme park. And we both just started instantly laughing. We were like, that that is something we never <laughs> thought we would say when we got married 10 years ago. And, and, but, but man, my eyes have been opened, uh, in a way that needed to be open to people, uh, young people, the next generation that you, that you talk about this coming up, uh, the hurt there, the confusion there, the pain mm-hmm. there, um, the curiosity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and just walking into those conversations and how much they enjoy those mm-hmm. conversations, uh, are, are, are striving for those conversations. I agree. People are so desperate for Jesus. And if they are in a tender spot and so are we, why would we not go to our Savior who binds up sure. all those wounds, right? And swoops sure. us up in his loving arms and tenderly cares for us. And I think we have to move away from um, the things we feel really passionate about that are secondary to the person of Christ and really get back to representing him online. And uh, representing what he was like and what he would say and what he would do. Yeah. And um, I think our affiliations will have to lessen and our um, our singular focus will have to be Jesus. And I know that sounds super cliche and super religious, but I really mean it. These affiliations that we have, soci- sociology, you know, politically, all this stuff, we're going to have to loosen some of those um, so that we can present and represent Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, no I doubt. I mean, it's um, yes. Uh, I think letting go of of ideologies that we don't realize have replaced the the correct theology uh, is is the problem, and and we need um, some cold hard facts uh, every now and then to to re uh, immerse us in those. So, mm-hmm. um, well, uh, switching gears here for a second, uh, you talk about business. You, you serve on the board of pillar seminary in Omaha. Tell us more about the seminary. Tell us more about serving on the board. That's a, that's a major position. Uh, tell us how you got there and, and a little bit about that organization. Sure. Yeah. It's such a joy to serve with the pillar seminary. They're doing extraordinary work. They are capitalizing on some some future seminary students that don't fit the traditional institutional model that are maybe already in vocational ministry and need some part-time training. Um, It's perfect for someone who needs contextual leadership, meaning I'm already in a position as the preschool minister. I don't have time to pause and go to seminary for four years. I can't afford something that's going to be 20 to 40,000. I need to go online to Zoom have seminary over lunch. I need to get myself a certificate and then get back into the mission field where God's already placed me. And so I love that, that ministry. I'm so passionate about what they're doing. I think it's removed some barriers to theological education. A lot of times for women, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about women um, advancing in business and faith and church leadership and seminary education. And to do that, we have to, we have to picture someone like a working mom in the capacity she would have to go back to school and we have to create institutional resources 
that meet her needs on a time frame that meets her. And so I found that with Pillar Seminary and um, I love the work that they're doing. So I think the way I found them was through my friend, Nika. She's the resident theologian at St. Jude Church in Oak Cliff, Texas here. She's the smartest person I know. And I think she was unavailable <laughs> for the job. So I'm pretty sure I was the second or third choice. And I, the best things in my life have come that way when I've been someone's That's second right. or third choice. But I said yes, because I have some um, experience launching nonprofits and, and businesses too. So that's great. Yeah. Stay fun. close, stay close to the, the important people. And uh, every now and then the people like us will get the second, uh, exactly. the second nods. That's right. Well, Kat, uh, just as if you're not busy enough as it is, you and I actually uh, got to know each other because we work together through an organization called Integris. Tell our listeners more about your leadership role there and uh, that's involved with this coaching ministry. Integris is the best job I've ever had, Glenn. It is the best job I have had yet. It's because of the people. I am in an orbit right now with ministry leaders like yourself and several others that I am learning from every day. I mean, I think I've got to pinch myself that I get to be in Lyle Wells' orbit or that I get to be in Meredith King's orbit. I mean, our whole leadership team, just extraordinary people. So I think additionally, the the mission of Integris Leadership to expand the kingdom, to invest in kingdom leaders, it's just such a beautiful mission. So you can tell I get really um, passionate about what we're doing. I serve as the director of leadership processes, which means I get to partner with the coaches that are doing executive coaching with ministry leaders. And I resource them, whether it's content or directing them somewhere, partnering them with the right partners in our organization. Um, but I get to spend a lot of time with some lead and senior pastors, executive pastors, business leaders that want to invest in the next generation. So imagine that I'm supposed to resource them. It's the best job in the world. They are highest caliber leaders. Um, you know, every once in a while, I'll send them a text message that I'm praying for them with a Bible verse. And that's about um, what I need to do as far as leading. Um, but I will say that I get the privilege and honor of stewarding new content creation for our organization. Some of the tools and products that we put, I have a, a key contributor role in some of those. And that's such a joy to build tools that I wish I had had when I co-founded the Polish Network in 2008 and did it with $500 in a little savings account and not understanding that I needed a board or incorporate, you know, to incorporate, or that I needed a legal document um, that I needed to register with the state, um, having no idea the millions of dollars it would take to sustain a nonprofit, um, to grow a leadership team, had no idea about HR. I didn't know how to coach myself. I didn't know about professional development. I just went out on a prayer, and by God's grace, we we survived me. But I look back now and I think if Integris leadership had been a part of my life, gosh, where where could we be as an organization? So that's why I love serving with them. And then, Glenn, I get to work with people like you. Super fun. Well, we're so glad to have you along in that role. And you're already making uh, such a meaningful difference. And so, Kat, thank you for your leadership and thank you for all you do there. Well, this has been uh, so much fun. But before we let you go, uh, we wanted to get to know you a little bit better. So we're going to run you through the rapid fire questions. And Dad, uh, you've got the first one. You bet. Cat, best and worst advice you've ever received. Best and worst advice. 
I can't think of the worst to save my life, Glenn, but the best advice I've been given is to have a date night once a week. And Aaron and I have been doing that for 20 years, and I can attest that it is so good for a relationship. Love that. That's great. That is great. Who are the most influential people in your life? Usually they're authors, and I would start with Eugene Peterson. I just, wow. I mean, the guy turned down Bono. You know, like that's when, you know, you're committed to the gospel work when Bono keeps trying to call you and say, I'd love to fly you out on my private jet to come to the Cowboys stadium to hear me because you've met pastored me from afar. And at the time, Eugene was like, no, I'm actually working on a translation um, for a manuscript and said, no, I love Eugene Peterson. So I'm all about that. And I would say Philip Yancey is a real close second And then I would say third is probably Carolyn Custis James. I love that woman and everything she's ever written. That's awesome. That's awesome. Wow. Well, Kat, I'm interested in this one. What was the last thing that you did where you took a risk and how did that work out? (laughs) Well, when uh, the Polish Network was still pretty young and my son was just born, I decided to start a company making bow ties for kids and for pets. And I manufactured overseas and I sold them to Neiman's and Nordstrom for a season. And it was a really big risk to do something I knew nothing about. I ended up hating it and stopped about 18 months later. Hey, that's a pretty wow. uh, good uh, uh, customer base there. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really good. Well, you know, they don't order a whole lot of bow ties, though. I figured that out real quick, <laughs> that I need to sell a lot of 25, you know, POS yeah. uh, items. Dead gum math gets in the way uh, every time. It kills me. <laughs> uh, you just needed a bigger truck. Golly. Just needed a bigger truck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, we've, we've heard one of these places, so I'm, I'm interested to, to hear the answer to this question. But best or most meaningful place you have ever visited? Costa Rica. We okay. got gifted a trip, and I'll never forget watching the sunset go over a mountain into the ocean over at Costa Rica. It was just stunning. I was like, this is, this is what Eden must've been like. And this is what glory is going to be like. I like that. Another item to add to our bucket list, Jacob. Uh, That one sounds pretty good. Well, uh, Kat, how about something you learned from your parents? My mom says all the time, hurt people, hurt people. I'm sure she took that from Mm. someone or is quoting someone, but that comes to mind quite often when Mm. someone is curt or short or mean or sends a hateful email or is testy. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is hurt people, hurt people. And I think it was her way of training me to look away from the way they're responding and to really what might be underneath that. That's good. That was real good. Uh, Especially this day and age, uh, in the world of social media. So, uh, I'm glad, I'm sure you know that uh, more than most, but, uh, you alluded to this a second ago, but let's see the answers best and worst job you've ever had. The absolute worst job I've ever had was waiting tables in College Station, Texas at the Outback Steakhouse right next to campus. Uh-huh. Absolutely hey. hated that job. Yeah. And I quit yeah. one night. I just walked out and never came back. And my parents were so humiliated that I would do something like that. That's not what that's not what open houses do. We see things through. Man, I quit that job so fast. <laughs> it was just not for me. Um, the best job has to be tied. Definitely integrous. And definitely with the Polish Network as the executive director for a decade, those two things have just been so much fun. Mm, that's great. 
Outback yeah, Steakhouse, I, know that Outback, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just one blooming onion too many? Too many. <laughs> too many. <laughs> hey, Kat, what is on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? Well, I I was regretting that this is what's in front of me because I just don't want to be characterized as the nerd. But I'm starting that doctoral program this fall, so I have to do reading, you guys, for it. And it's called The Pharisees by Seavers and Levine. So that's what I'm reading. I definitely have not had that answer uh, before. You win. It's got a red cover, and it's all about what the Pharisees were like and how to view them. And it's a little over my head, if I'm honest. All right, well, let's just scratch around the roots. <clears throat> um, we always make the Pharisees out to be the bad guys. What have you learned about the Pharisees that actually was positive? You know what? the I think the book premise, because I like to read the final chapter before I read the book. The premise is really Amy Jill Levine is a brilliant Jewish scholar. And what she's trying to say is that the Pharisees don't represent all of the Jews and the Jews aren't all evil. And sometimes that's the pattern we make in our brains. Unfortunately, as Christians, that because the Jews are the ones that crucified Jesus, that all Jews are evil. And then past that, that really the Pharisees were kind of the utmost of the Jews. And really what the book is showing is that the Pharisees were really committed to God and his ways. And just like you and I, we get confused. Jesus can really mess up our religion. And he has a a profound way of doing that. So that's what I'm learning about the Pharisees. That's good. Uh, that will probably be the most I ever read about that book, to be honest with you. So I'm glad, <laughs> don't, you, gave, don't, yeah. I'm glad you just gave the final chapter. Uh, I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, so, uh, but in a, now, now we can go a little bit more broad here. Uh, in addition to the Bible, what is the best book you have ever read? I have been trying to think about this the whole time we've been on this show. I mean, every break, every time you guys talk, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to say. So I think I just need to, to, to know that I won't have to, um, that next week this might change. But sure. I think it's Carolyn Custis James, and it's her book, When Be- when Life and Beliefs Collide. And I think it's the best book I've ever read because I can remember where I was sitting, what day of the week it was, everything that was going on around me. It was such a holy moment. She was probably the first to articulate um, what happens when our life doesn't align with what we thought it would be and how to keep our faith through it. And she's a prolific voice. If you haven't read, you know, listeners, if you haven't read anything, she's got six or seven books. All of them are excellent. But when life and faith, when life and beliefs collide is really good. That's great. It's always fun making an author pick one book. So, oh, job, so job well done. Job well done. I know. So hard. I know. I love it. Well, what's next for Cat Armstrong? You know, I think um, really investing at Integris Leadership and creating some prof, uh, products along with my colleagues that serve ministry leaders is on the horizon. And then I would say the Storyline Project, launching that into the world and helping people see the beauty and the masterpiece that is the Bible. And that's what I'm really passionate about. I'm praying, Glenn and Jacob, that, that people would put their faith back together. Well, yeah. Kat, uh, this has just been phenomenal. Uh, like I said at the beginning, we've been looking forward to this to, for a really long time. It's an honor to have you here on the show today. So thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. My pleasure. Completely. Appreciate y'all. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, uh, thank you as always. And we're going to have the links, like I said, to Kat's info, links to her books, the Polish Network, the podcast, all in the show notes below. Uh, and so please check those out. 
Our guest today, Kat Armstrong, Bible teacher, author, innovative ministry leader. And as Jacob said, we have been looking forward to this for the past several months. Thank you, Kat. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe, share our podcast with others, and please follow us along on our Instagram account. And until next time, keep chasing what matters.